I mean, surely the UK cannot do as badly as they did last year, can't we? <laughs> I mean, when you've had zero points, I guess the only way is up. But uh, no, I'm very excited because I think we might actually have a chance of doing quite well this year for once. So um, that'll be fun. And who are we fighting against the title, uh, fighting against for the coveted trophy? I mean, the runaway favourites at the moment are Ukraine, um, given everything that's going on politically as well. But uh, I'd say Spain, Italy, Sweden are ones to look out for. They all have great songs. So um, let's see. Yeah, and and I definitely want to, after we record this, immediately go onto YouTube and find out what the Norwegian act is like in the (laughs) semi-finals. Well then, uh, this is actually a politic podcast, believe it or not. If we do not start soon, we'll probably just spend the entire time just talking about the most important day of the entire year. So shall we get to it? Indeed. And it is Saturday, the 14th of May, 2022. And this is Ballad to Talk About. Hello and welcome to Ballot to Talk About. Joining me as always from the other side of the globe is my co-host Churn. It's been a long time since we used that old style of introduction, wasn't it? Oh, it really is. It was definitely nostalgic, I have to admit. It was nice trying to craft it as well, but uh, it speaks of a time so long ago, isn't it? And speaking of a time so long ago, as I'm sure many British people feel about the last time they won Eurovision, this weekend is probably, apart from all the elections that take place on the weekend, the most important time of the year. Because it's Eurovision weekend in Turin in Italy. So, Seb, what are your plans to, for this exciting Eurovision weekend? Well, I'm actually working this evening, but I'll be um, having having Eurovision on in the background for sure. I'm sad I'm, I'll be missing it fully because it's going to be a, an exciting year. And there's reason for optimism, as I said in the intro. So that's good. How about you? Well, I'm afraid time difference is going to ensure that I probably sleep this one off. But uh, what I am pleased about is the fact that we are once again celebrating and it's a time for laughter and some politics in the voting, which is something that I always look forward to. But uh, Sam, what are we going to be talking about this week on our politics podcast? Yeah, so this week we'll be previewing next weekend's Australian federal election where Prime Minister Scott Morrison will be hoping to gain a fourth term for his Liberal National Coalition government. And he'll be fighting against a Labour Party now led by Anthony Albanese. So Churn, let's start with talking about the Coalition, because they're the ones who are defending government and helping to move into a decade in, in power in Australia. And I mean, before we talk about them a bit more in detail, could you give us a bit of a an overview about the coalition for people who aren't too familiar with Australian politics. Indeed. So this coalition is a coalition of two parties, the Liberal Party, which tends to fight in many cities, and the more rural farmers-based National Party. And they have been in government uh, since since, since 2013 under Tony Abbott. And current Prime Minister uh, Scott Morrison has been leading the party since August 2018. This time round, the coalition will start this election after redistribution with 76 seats, which in a chamber of 151 is the bare minimum needed to form a government. So weirdly, this, the, this election, the government needs to gain seats somewhere because they're actually starting on 75 seats because Craig Kelly, who was, fight, who was their member in the electorate of Hughes, is running for the United Australia Party in this election. So the government is going to have to gain seats here, which is a bit interesting. And they're going to suffer, they will probably suffer some inevitable losses elsewhere, which I'm sure you're going to discuss. They head into this election seeking a fourth term for their government, something which uh, John Howard managed to do in 2004. But the last time the Liberals were in government in the 70s, they notably failed to do that. Uh, it has been tricky this, this, since Scott Morrison's miracle election victory in 2019. The government has had to do with the hor- uh, horrendous bushfires in 20, early 2020. There was flooding that took place in certain parts of New South Wales earlier this year. And of course, the main event that dominated this electoral cycle is the response to COVID-19. 
And the government goes into this election based on the latest opinion polls, and we'll talk about Australian opinion polls in a minute, in a much more vulnerable position than it did three years ago, where Scott Morrison pulled off what at that time seemed a miracle victory. Nonetheless, he is the first leader since John Howard in 2007 to win an election, serve a full term, and will once again face the people once again. So I think, Sam, it's a good place to start off with talking about uh, one of the tactics, because at federal level in Australia, the leader is still able to choose the election date. And when Scott Morrison called the election, he was given the option to call a five-week election campaign or a six-week election campaign. Do you think a slightly longer campaign has worked this time around? I'm not particularly sure it's made a huge difference, but I guess we'll see next week because all it seems to have made much more space for is extra controversies and 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 disagreements on both sides, not just affecting Scott Morrison. And I think, if anything, the, the longer campaign has just allowed more space for those things to rumble on. I'm talking about things like um, the, the culture war issue, which seems to be becoming a big problem for Scott Morrison over there. There were Inca candidate Catherine Deves over transphobic tweets. Um, and then on Anthony Albanese's side, he's facing difficult questions over exactly how much he wants to raise the minimum wage by, which has been rumbling on every day since the last leaders debate. So I think all it's done, in, in my opinion, is left more space for these controversies to just rumble on. And if anything, both leaders' approval ratings to just gradually fall as the campaign goes on. I don't know about you, Chern. I think Scott Morrison's idea was that when he called the election, his party was behind already. And he figured a longer campaign would enable his government to come from behind because that's exactly what happened in 2016. Then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull called an eight-week campaign and managed to claw his way back into majority government. And exactly what happened in 2019, the Labour Party was thought to be miles ahead, but it came right in, in 2019 at the end and, def- and Scott Morrison is able to win. But I think this time around, the government is three years older, it's had many controversies throughout this past term, And I think as well, the government wanted to run a message on that it was strong on the economy and strong on national security. Well, the strong on the economy front, we've just had inflation in Australia go past 5%, and that has prompted the central bank to increase interest rates in Australia for an all-time low, which is particularly vulnerable in a country with one of the nation's highest levels of household debt. And secondly, on a national security front, one of the big things that dominated this campaign was China signing a deal to which many critics have said will essentially place a military base on the Solomon Islands, which is often seen as Australia's backyard. And the Labour Party has had a lot of opportunity to tell many people that the government has dropped the ball in the Pacific. And worse for the government as well was that Labour leader Anthony Albanese had a horrid first week. Uh, There is footage of him being unable to recall what the cash rate was and what the national unemployment rate was, which is particularly on the latter, particularly horrifying and terrible for an opposition leader. There's no ways of sugarcoating it. But by allowing for a longer campaign and with so much more issues to then go under the roof, it meant that that gaffe that happened four or five weeks ago had very much receded in the rearview mirror. Yeah, I mean, it's been a campaign of multiple ups and downs and as you said i think the longer campaign has allowed stories to just fade into the background and new ones to emerge i mean you talked about the solomon islands problem for example well in the past couple of days there has been the big story about the former solomon islands high commissioner being um manhandled by scott morrison's security after he was following him and heckling him whilst on a tour i think it was in tasmania but um yeah so as you said i think this long campaign if anything has not particularly served one candidate over the other, but has allowed the narrative to shift so many times in the build-up to next week's election day. And we just wonder which stories are going to stick in voters' minds when they go to the polling booth, because there's been so many of them. Well, he was followed, he was nearly manhandled by the uh, Solomon Islands High Commission. Well, the, the, I'm not sure what he saw, Sam, but the day before in Victoria, at a press conference held with his Chisholm ca- candidate for Chisholm uh, and Liberal MP Gladys Liu, he was, uh, he was nearly gatecrashed by Kim Jong-un lookalike protesting uh, the government's policies over China. So it's been that kind of, uh, I'm afraid, personality and stunt-driven campaign rather than pers- uh, policy-driven campaign, I'm afraid. Um, so Chern, b- before we talk about one of the big threats to the coalition in this election, which is 
the rise of the so-called teal independence and the climate 200 backed candidates i just want to take our memories back to 2019 because in that election they seem to be able to completely change the narrative over the course of the campaign and reduce Labour's lead dramatically and eventually come out the unexpected winners. What do you, what would you say were the ingredients behind that comeback? And is the ground fertile enough to recreate that this time around? This is a huge question to answer, but I'm just going to focus on the differences between this campaign and now and why I think it's very different. By primarily focusing on the opposition's approach, I acknowledge that this government is three years older, and I think it's now four terms are notoriously difficult for any party to achieve anywhere around the world. Um, but in this time around, what I think is different is that in 2019, Scott Morrison was relatively new to the job. He had been in the job for less than a year after he took over the leadership in after the shambles on Malcolm Turnbull's ouster as prime minister. And at that point, the Labour leader under Bill Shorten ran a campaign that had many bold policy platforms in it. You know, stuff like negative gearing, stuff like capital gains tax changes, stuff like uh, climate change, for example. But this time around, Labour under Anthony Albanese is presenting a very much what they call a small target strategy. You know, small announcements here and there and focusing on a few things like childcare, Medicare, aged care, rather than huge big ticket reform items. And that has meant from Scott Morris's point of view is one of his strengths in 2019 was his ability to constantly keep on message for a long period of time. It has meant that because Labour has presented such a small target, he's been unable to aim at anything. And we can see that this time around, discipline within a government has begun to break down a little bit, crucially over the issue of climate change. I remember in the week when Anthony Albanese had COVID, and I thought this was a prime opportunity for the coalition to so dominate the airways in which, given that one of the, the opposition leader was out. But the very early part of that campaign was dominated by National Senator Matt Canavan and whether and him dissing the government's net 50, uh, z- net zero by 2050 pledge and say, and one of his candidates saying that there's flexibility built in the system and that distracted the advantage that it had. So I think all this means that it's just so much harder for the coalition to pull off another miracle victory. Do you agree, Sam? I think putting the comparison in between now and 2019 is really important as to whether this miracle victory from 2019 can be recreated. And I think you made some good observations there. For me, I looked at some of the underlying data that's different between this time and last time. And the main place I looked was to do with the leadership approval ratings and preferred prime minister polling, because I think this tells a good story as to why we've, we saw a dramatic shift in the polls in 2019 and we're not seeing that as much this time around. So in 2019, Scott Morrison led the preferred Prime Minister polling for the entire campaign and he largely had a positive approval rating compared to Bill Shorten's consistently negative approval rating hovering around the minus 10% mark. And this time around, Both leaders have a negative approval rating. However, the preferred prime minister rating has sort of alternated between the two, with Scott Morrison tending to have a narrow win most of the time, but the numbers being much tighter together. And in fact, Scott Morrison's approval rating is hovering about negative 10 to 15 percent, whereas Anthony Albanese's is hovering around minus 5 to minus 10. So a slight lead for the Labour leader on net satisfaction overall. And I think this goes a long way to explain, in 2019, there was the potential for people to revert back to the coalition because they prefer Scott Morrison as a prime minister. This time around, that lead is not necessarily as clear. And whilst both people have a negative rating, it's Albanese who seems to be slightly more popular. I mean, that number is warped by the fact that the don't knows are higher for Anthony Albanese versus Scott Morrison, but still, they're much closer together on approval rating. And we saw this also in the UK in 2015, where we had the headline voting intention, but under the surface, there was a much higher preference for a Conservative government than a Labour government, which was the same in Australia in 2019. But that difference seems to have fallen away as we've moved towards this election. So I think the potential for an upset because of people reverting to, well, who do I want to lead the government? 
doesn't exist as much as it did in the data in 2019. I think I just want to add one more point to that, is that the coalition's primary vote this time around is significantly lower than what it was in 2019. Now, I'm going to ask you the next question about polls, Sam, so I'm going to give you some time to think about it, whether polls are reliable this time around. But this time around, the coalition's primary vote is about 35 36%, and Labour is about the same, or if not slightly higher. Now, Labour will benefit from a strong flow of very disciplined green preferences, which the coalition cannot benefit from minor right-wing party preferences. And, the, and that explains why the two-party vote for news poll as of the day recording, which is one week out, gives the coalition a 54-46% lead, rather than last time around with 51-52%. So Sam, can we believe those numbers? Because I think one of the big things that shook a lot of people is because up to 2019, Australian election polls were phenomenally accurate. In fact, in 2016, they were bang on in terms of two-party preferences. There was a lot of examination in 2019. So in these set of polls, can we believe these numbers? I think we can believe the overall trends of the numbers, which are pointing towards a narrow Labour lead in, in, in the current moment. And in the past four or five years in Australian polls, the general assumed logic has been that the polls are about one one to two percent underestimating the coalition pretty much across state elections across federal elections across by-elections the coalition usually outperform polls by about one or two percent if you applied that logic to 2019 they had a virtual tie on two-party preference in the um last few opinion polls as you said about a 51 52 percent for labor so for that to come out with the coalition on top in the two-party preference narrowly sort of is is in the ballpark that we were expecting in terms of the margin of error for these polls this time around let's assume the last poll last poll says what it said today 54 to 46 well then you can probably expect a coalition performance of around 48 47 48 instead of 46 that would still lead a labor victory so i think the difference between now to 2019 is that the Labour has a bit of a buffer zone in the polls in terms of its lead that even if the coalition performance is underestimated marginally you would still have Labour in front whereas the polls got so tight in 2019 that the margin for error kind of allowed a whole plethora of results all the way from a narrow Labour win to the narrow coalition win that actually materialised in the end as well. Yeah, I think I agree with you that, that they are going to have to rely on a bigger polling error than last time around to win. And I'm not quite sure whether they are considering as well is that since 2019, there have been efforts to try it. Uh, the, for example, the Australian Polling Council has been formed and many of and which is an attempt by the polling industry to come up with a set of rules to, together. So, for example, releasing margin of error, you know, showing some kind of methodology as well. And don't forget the last state election in South Australia their results proved remarkably accurate, actually, in terms of uh, in terms of results. There was, again, a slight bias, but it was within what one would expect. It was generally thought to be a good poll. So it seems like they are, the government is in much bigger trouble heading into this election. And what I find interesting to me is that these results are roughly the same as five or six weeks ago. So nothing that Scott Morrison has said, done, or announced have managed to move the needle in terms of... Uh, opinion polling compared to 2019, suggesting that, mm. do you think, Sam, that, like what I think, that the gov people have just stopped listening to Scott Morrison and that's very dangerous for the coalition itself? Yeah, I mean, so much has happened in this term of government, not least the largest global pandemic in a century, um, some of Australia's most severe bushfires and quite recently quite contentious decisions about opening the border, international travel and international trade. So all that put together, I think people have had ample time to make up their decision on whether they support this government or not. And unlike prior terms of government where you might have minor economic problems or a scandal here or there, well, this government has been laden with problems, not least party management problems, scandals. We talked many, many times before on this podcast about the numerous um, sexual harassment scandals that this government has had to deal with as well. And I think if you if you hadn't made up your mind by this campaign, and this is not me being biased in any particular way in Australia, but if you hadn't made up your mind already, 
have you been paying attention at all? Because you've had ample opportunity to decide whether you support what the government is doing or whether you don't. So for for some people to leave it up to this campaign to decide which side they're on really surprises me, given how packed this last term has been. I don't know if you agree with that take, Chen. I think that's interesting because I think that people have annoyed with Scott Morrison, but I'm not sure whether they fully believe in the Labour Party itself. Because at the end of the day, you might be annoyed with the government to not preference the Liberal Party first, which could explain their six-point drop in its primary vote. But at the same time, because of the fact that it's compulsory preferential voting, you have to number every box, you're going to have to make a decision on whether you prefer Labour to win this election or the Liberals to win this election. And I'm not sure about you, Sam, but I'm not convinced that Australians, particularly in some of the uh, news articles I see in terms of focus groups, know who Anthony Albanese is, which is quite surprising given he's been in politics for since the 90s, since he entered Parliament in 1996, which is the year you and I were born. So he's been uh, so he's been in politics for a very long time. He was a high-profile minister during the Rudd Gillard years as well as infrastructure minister, among a whole host of other portfolios as well. So I think the electorate is in uh, not in a mood in which it doesn't like Scott Morrison, but doesn't know whether it will trust the Labour leader. And I think, Sam, that this could explain a bit about why the coalition has faced a particular threat from teal independence in some of their blue ribbon seats. So, Sam, why don't you give our listeners a bit of explanation? What are these teal independents and how much of a threat are they to the coalition? Yeah, I mean, just before I explain the teal independence, I think it's worth saying that I think this is one reason why the coalition might be worried about opinion polls, because... As we're about to explain, there has been quite a number of independent candidates in constituencies standing specifically against coalition candidates. Now, that makes opinion polling very difficult because opinion polling sort of relies on the assumed logic that everybody votes for parties that stand across all constituencies in Australia. But these specific constituency races make opinion polling quite difficult to be accurate other than um, the YouGov MRP poll, which British listeners will be very familiar with. Well, one of those was actually conducted in Australia within the last week and managed to try and pinpoint some of the regression analysis in these individual constituencies with teal independence as well. So I think there is yet another asterisk to add to opinion polling, which is this threat of independence, which is much harder to track on national polling as well. But to just explain... this independent movement. An overwhelming majority of these local independent candidates who are standing against coalition um, candidates and um, and incumbent MPs are being funded by a, what is effectively a, a a PAC um, in terms of using US political language, a funding organisation called Climate 200, who are altogether funding 22 candidates across Australia, Notably, not a single one of them is in a Labour held seat currently. And they, they, they are facing against some quite high profile Liberal MPs as well, not least the current Treasurer of Australia, who, will, who in his seat of Kuyong is facing quite a significant challenge um, from Monique Ryan. And Josh Frydenberg has been forced to actually debate her on television and has been forced to spend a lot of time campaigning in his own seat, not necessarily joining the big liberal campaign across the country as well. So the, the pressure that these independent candidates are putting on the government is is quite significant. And I'm not saying that they're going to walk away with 20 plus seats in this election because that is not going to happen. But the impact they've had on how the campaign has had to be conducted, particularly the coalition's attitude towards um, climate politics, has had to shift quite dramatically. And we will be paying attention to, to some to quite a few seats across Australia on the night next Saturday, including seats like um, Wentworth, Kuyong, Goldstein and Curtin, just to name a few, where we have quite some prominent independent challengers. And in fact, the YouGov MRP poll, which I referenced a few minutes ago, suggested two big wins for Teal Independence, which we'll be paying attention to. So they suggest that Josh Frydenberg will lose his seat of Kuyong, and also in Goldstein that Zoe Daniel, who's a former ABC journalist, 
um, will will defeat her opponent um, as well. So I think the fact that Frydenberg agreed to debate Ryan on TV suggests reflects the scale of the challenge he believes he's facing. But I don't know what you what's your assessment of the threat of these teal independents. Well, let's just focus on Kuyong first because this is something I don't think at the start of campaign you and I Sam will be talking about the defeat of the treasurer's constituency because Kuyong is liberal territory, blue blood territory. And that's one of the key things about the Climate 200 candidates. They're targeting blue ribbon constituencies. So Kuyong is the former seat of former Prime Minister Robert Menzies. It's been held by former Trade Minister Andrew Robb. You know, it's and the former leader of the opposition, Andrew Peacock. And Josh Frydenberg was seen as the next best thing in case Scott Morrison fails to uh, win the election. So to me, the fact that, and I think it's, it's knowledge that the Liberal Party only realised that middle of this campaign, they were in deep trouble when there was a story in the paper when Josh Frydenberg had took out this massive advertisement for 30,000 Australian dollars a day, and it changed it from a coalition banner to just a simple keep Josh banner. Now that suggests to me that it's a treasurer who is worried. And you might ask me, what is the impact of that? Well, the impact of that has meant that if a government wants to run a message on the economy, and trying to say we're better economic managers than the Labour Party, it has meant that he's, they are unable to get the chief salesperson for their message, the treasurer, to go and march around marginal constituencies where this election will be actually fought because the treasurer himself is so busily defending his own seat. So there are wider implications of the fact that uh, Josh Frydenberg is just so bogged down in it. And I think what is interesting to me is that this is a movement that, it, although they brand themselves as independent, what I find interesting is that the Climate 200 has also been motivated by two factors uh, that could really explain uh, what, what big themes over the last term in government. One, which is stronger action on climate change. Now, although Scott Morrison did pledge net zero by 2050 in this election cycle, it notably failed to give any targets for 2030. And Sam, if you recall, at, when we, at the end of COP, the, Australia was one of the countries that forced a last-minute change in the language of COP from a phase out of coal to a phase down of coal. And I think this is playing really badly in these so-called blue-ribbon electorates. And secondly, on, on the Climate 200 endorsed independence, 20 out of the 22 independents are women, which I think is really interesting. Now, Sam, one of the things that you recall is that during this term of parliament, there's been a lot of scandals regarding harassment and rape of women in parliament itself. And Scott Morrison, despite having a record number of women, was seen as relatively weak on this issue. So I think these two issues are coming home to roofs. Yeah, and I mean, as I'm sure we'll come to talk about when we talk about the Labour Party and one of the reasons it struggled so much in 2019 is... One thing Scott Morrison is going to have to do if he wants to win this election is sandbag um, the the huge advances they made in the state of Queensland back in 2019. The problem with Queensland is one of the reasons Labour didn't do particularly well in 2019 was because they couldn't navigate the debate between their climate policy and the heavy industrial reliance of the state of Queensland. So the more Scott Morrison spends talking about climate to try and combat these teal independents, the less time he's talking about the economic issues that play better in Queensland as well. And it sort of seems to have been a bit of a reversal of the narrative within the last three years where the climate versus economy problem was Labour's problem in Queensland in 2019, whereas it seems to have now become the coalition's problem as they seek to defend teal independence, if indeed they are seeking to defend people from teal independence, because there's many people in um, the Liberal Party who seem to have made the decision that we're, we are, there is nothing we can do to defeat these teal independents because it would require too much of a shift in party policy. So some people have been saying, let's leave these seats, which includes Josh Frydenberg, the treasurer, and let's focus on trying to sandbag some of our gains in Queensland and also some of the demographic shifts in, in more um, urban, in, in more outskirts of urban centres. So seats, seats like um, Hunter, for example, that is one of the Liberal Party's top targets, one of the coalition's top targets going into this election. So that has been an interesting aspect of this as well. 
Sam, a thought just occurred to me. This shifts that we're seeing that the coalition is facing, I see some parallels between the threats that the Liberal Party in Australia has and what Boris Johnson Conservatives Party faced in the local elections we covered in last week's podcast. Because in last week's podcast, the Conservatives lost control of Westminster Council, Wandsworth Council, which are, you know, royal blue Tory heartlands in the middle of cities. And in the same place here, you know, they gained the, the, the Liberal Party's in trouble in big urban seats where in this case, climate change is not only a moral issue where we have to do something, but I suspect many of these voters see climate change as a business opportunity, particularly in the renewables industry as well. Whereas in Queensland, it is not a, it is less, particularly in those coal seats, a renewables opportunity and rather my industry is under threat, which is why we saw different messaging on the national side. But, and if you recall as well, in the UK elections, is that the Conservatives took control of Harrow Council, if you remember, which is in the outer suburbs of London. And this time around, the you're quite rightly saying that the Nationals are targeting Hunter, the Liberals are targeting Parramatta, Macquarie. I think Scott Morris has been to a Parramatta five times or something like that over this campaign. So don't, do you see that parallels in the trends that we saw in the UK that we covered last week and here in Australia? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, I listened to... Um a really interesting um, podcast that The Guardian have been doing um, about as answering questions about the Australian election. And one of them, they were talking about the Red Wall and one of the Australian commentators didn't fully understand what the Red Wall was. But once it was explained to them, she said, oh, that's exactly what's going on um, in Australia at the moment as well, is that the coalition have been targeting some solid red seats historically. I mean, Hunter, as one example, has been Labour since 1910 and the and the coalition are looking to looking to take it and likely will. Um, so that is just that is just a, an interesting parallel as well before we move on to talk about the main opposition party. Indeed. And let's talk about the main opposition party, because, again, there are some interesting trends to talk about as well. The, the, the Labour Party is Australia's oldest political party and has been led by Anthony Albanese, who, as we said, has been in Parliament since 1966. He represents the seat of Grainler. And interestingly, Scott Morrison's seat of Cook are both in New South Wales. So the next Prime Minister will hail from the state of New South Wales. And I think both home states will be key to each party's victory. He, Albanese has been Labour leader since its shock loss in 2019. And he previously was Minister for Infrastructure, Local Government, Communications, and Deputy Prime Minister for a short period of time when Labour was in government from 2007 and 2013. The party is heading to this election with 69 seats and needs to flip at least seven seats to win a majority government. So Sam, I think that to start off our conversation about the Labour Party, Australians have rarely changed governments. In fact, since World War II, there have only been three Three times a Labour Party leader has, that has led their party from opposition to government, the last being Kevin Rudd in 2007. Can Anthony Albanese do the same? I think, I think he can. Um, and a lot of the reasons we've been discussing in terms of why it's less likely that Scott Morrison can pull off a surprise victory than in 2019 apply the same here into why I think that Anthony Albanese can um, pull off this victory for the Labour Party. And in fact, the MRP poll, which I've mentioned a few times, um, suggests that they might win quite a comfortable victory. In fact, they had them down as winning 80 seats, which would be, in terms of recent standards of Australian elections, would be quite a large victory, to be honest, um, for the Labour Party, especially considering how much the polls had narrowed um, within the last few months. But the one thing I will say is that the margins are very tight in this election and there are, I think there's 16 seats where the margin going into this election is less than 3%. Um, so it seems to suggest that this is an election where marginal results all across the country can vary this result massively from all the way from a hung parliament to, by as I said, by recent standards, quite a significant majority for our Anthony Albanese's Labour Party. The one result I don't think is on the table necessarily is a coalition majority. I would be surprised if that was the result of this election. But anywhere, any other result, I wouldn't be surprised. A coalition-led Hong Parliament, um, a Labour-led Hong Parliament, or indeed a Labour majority. But crucially, I do think Labour can win this election. 
And I think a lot of it has to do with that preferred prime minister polling. I just think Anthony Albanese is in a much better position than Bill Shorten was in 2019. And in order for you to pull off a successful election campaign, your party needs to be popular, but also the leader needs to be popular. And I don't think Anthony Albanese is as popular as he should be. Uh, sorry, as he needs to be to be certain to win this election. But crucially, he's more popular at the moment than Scott Morrison. And I think at the end of the day, that will be what matters. I think as well, Labour is much more clever in terms of how it has run this campaign compared to last time around three years ago. For example, the last few days, we've had a lot of conversation about wages, which Anthony Albanese has gone on record saying that the government may submit uh, that the minimum wage in Australia should rise by at least 5.1%, which is the rate of inflation, which is forcing the government to say that, well, to sort of implicitly argue that it's against the minimum wage keeping up with inflation. So that's a very quite clever wedge that the party has found itself in. And I think as well, the pandemic, what has meant that is that opposition leaders have been quite invisible during the pandemic. We saw many of them fall throughout the country. But nonetheless, I think what is that has meant is that a lot of the, the government's sheen, as you like, particularly as the pandemic has worn on, and pandemic management, that they want to take their anger out at something. And unfortunately, in states like Victoria and New South Wales, the federal government is facing the electorate before the state government is. So this is the first time that voters in these two crucial states will cast their judgment on a government when it's endured two quite long lockdowns over the Australian summer. And so that is unfortunate timing for the government and an advantage for Anthony Albanese as well. I also think he's tried to adopt a bit of the South Australian playbook that we discussed in uh, after the state election that Peter Malinowskis won. It is notable that the party's campaign strongly on aged care, Medicare and issues surrounding uh, childcare. Uh, the first two are very health-related concerns, which is what one of the main talking points that propelled Malinowskis to victory in April. And I see some parallels with this campaign. The one thing that I should note, however, Sam, is that the number of marginal seats, that is the number of seats under 6% margin, is considerably longer on the Labour side than on the government side. So for Labour to win this election, they need to hold all their marginal seats. Otherwise, we're in hung parliament territory. And the Hunter is one of those that you brought up. I think the other ones to watch are Parramatta, which is on a slightly bigger margin, also has a retiring MP as well. Blair could be interesting. Queensland seat, big working class community of Ipswich, for example, and it could be vulnerable there. So I think Labour does have some weaknesses on its defences that it needs to show up. And that is step one to forming a majority, mm. to getting those 76 seats. Crucially, though, I think that a lot of these marginals on the Labour side are marginals that led to the 2019 victory in terms of the coalition were just able to tip the needle in their direction in some of these really tight seats and end up with a really strong result from 2019. And I think a lot of this campaign has provided clues as to whether the coalition really are aggressively going for these seats. I mean, you cited that Scott Morrison has been to... Parramatta um, quite a number of times across this campaign. However, the most visited seats across both parties, all of them are liberal defences. So it seems to be that this campaign is very much being fought on a Labour attacking, coalition defending mentality across the board. And we've seen some of the seats like Seats like um, Bass has been one of the most visited seats across the country. This this election seems to be fought, being fought quite a lot on um, liberal soil. Um, and the other thing I'll say is as well, and I know we talked many times about how this the state governments and federal governments in Australia tend to operate quite differently. The electorates tend to be quite different. However, a lot of what's going on in the state seems to suggest that the Labour Party apparatus is in good form. I mean, the South Australia result was very recent and we saw Peter Malinowskis pull off quite a big victory. But further afield than that, you have last year in Western Australia, Mark McGowan pulled off an enormous victory. Um, we then have in Victoria, the popular Labour Premier Daniel Andrews standing against government COVID advice, um, which has proven quite popular within Victoria. And then Anastasia Palaszczuk in Queensland is still pulling off great personal approval rating numbers. And 
Yes, as I said, this will not necessarily directly translate into federal support, but it does seem to suggest to me that the Labour um, mentality and Labour apparatus nationally is at a strong position compared to 2019, where they were in governments across numerous states, but not with this kind of recent proven electoral strength that we've got across the board this time around. Yeah, on the state governments thing, I think the problem the coalition had is that it also lost Gladys Barry Jicklin at the end of last year as well. And I think at that point, Scott Morrison could have thought that he could have gained some seats, more, much more seats in New South Wales, if she was helping to lead the campaign in New South Wales. But the moment her resignation took place, and I don't think Dominic Perrottier has managed to capture that same star power that, uh, that Gladys Barry Jicklin had. I think you're definitely right on Western Australia. The Liberals only have two seats in the Parliament of 59. But what crucially that means is that there are less state MPs and less state uh, volunteers that can help out in the federal election campaign. And there's talk that Labour could pick up three seats in Western Australia. Hasluck, uh, which is held by the Indigenous Affairs Minister Kent Wyatt, which would be quite a big gain. Uh, Christian Porter's former seat of Pierce is almost thought to be gone. And Swan is also thought to be gone. That's a retiring seat. So that could give the coalition three, possibly even four, if we include Tangi, though that's a bit of a long shot, which is half the number of seats Labour needs to get for an overall majority. So one state alone could get Labour half of the way there. I think on the other states, however, it could be a bit more of a complicated picture. Yes, they had a very good victory in South Australia with Peter Malinowskis, but it's only one seat that is really being fought over, which is Boothby. And that is largely expected to fall. So it's not a particularly profitable state. Sturt could be interesting, but I don't. But it could be a little bit too much for a uh, bite to chew on that. And Queensland, well, I think Queensland, we never know, isn't it? They, they are quite prone to think very differently. And they, they appreciate thinking differently for so many elections. I just can't. Yes, Anastasia Palaszczuk still retains much more popularity than Anthony Albanese. But I'm sorry, Sam, I'm going to dis- I just can't translate any statewide trends there and federal elections. And I think you're absolutely right to reinforce that caveat in all of these results. Yeah. A state translation. No, I mean, I think you're definitely right. And I think another thing that has been a problem for the Labour Party is that they only really have one high profile politician on the federal level from Queensland. And that's the shadow treasurer, Jim Chalmers, who's basically been single handedly leading the Labour campaign in Queensland, almost to the point that... He was asked on the campaign trail within the last few weeks when he was going to take over as Labour leader. So rather than having any visible enthusiasm for Anthony Albanese, all the questions have been around Jim Chalmers and his potential takeover. So it does seem like there are some significant asterisks going on in Queensland. And it's whether Jim Chalmers has been able to make the economic argument that Labour crucially needs in Queensland because... That's what it lacked in 2019, and that's why Queensland basically single-handedly handed the election back to the coalition. So um, th- there, is, there is a lot of work to do in um, Queensland. But as I said earlier, I do think that the narrative is slightly different this time around, because this time, um, as I said, last time they had a huge problem with squaring the environmental agenda and the local jobs agenda, particularly around the Adani coal mine. But... In 2022, the coalition has the same problem because of their recent net zero pledge. So it does seem like both parties are having the same problem in Queensland with squaring those two polar opposite issues. So Sam, I'm I'm just curious, we took, if Labour, if the coalition was pleasantly surprised by 2019, Labour must be scarred by 2019. They let the opinion polls throughout the entire three years and yet failed when it ultimately counted, which is at the ballot box. How much of an impact has that 2019 election impacted this Labour Party's campaign and how Anthony Albanese has treated governing uh, or is planning to treat governing should he be successful? Yeah, I mean, I think they're definitely scarred and they're definitely scarred by the potential fragility of their polling lead because although, as we talked about a bit earlier, the lead in the final week is slightly higher than 2019. It's still in that ballpark and they saw how quickly it could fall away back in 2019. So I do think there is scarring there. Um, However, they haven't had quite the same level of lead fall this time around, which could give some reasons for optimism. I think the main thing I've seen in terms of 
the impact of that 2019 result on how this campaign has been conducted is I think the Labour Party have been a lot more um, cautious in how it's put out messages and how it's campaigned. And we saw quite like a scattergun approach in 2019 where the Labour Party was like, we need to win, we need to win big, so we're going to campaign everywhere on every issue. That's not been what's gone on this time around. It seemed a lot more coordinated. As I've said, Jim Chalmers has been leading the campaign in Queensland and has been very specific on making economic arguments there. And on the national scene, we've seen the more drip drip of policy, quite carefully coordinated policy leaks. I just, I mean, I'm thinking in my head now of a clip from the recent leaders debate where you could tell when Anthony Albanese was asked about the minimum wage that all he was thinking was, I can't make any bold commitment that will seem economically unsound, so I'm just going to say nothing. And then it wasn't until the next couple of days after the campaign that he made that commitment to rise the minimum wage in line with inflation after clearly it had been focus grouped, it had been costed, we need to talk about this. So it does seem that you can see the, the nervousness in the Labour Party about we can't afford to make any mistakes because it fell apart last time and we don't want it to fall apart this time. And crucially as well, I think that first week gaffe when Labour leader Anthony Albanese failed to mention what the interest rate was and the unemployment rate was, made everyone in Labour HQ right. That was probably our only mistake of the campaign. And that was in a six-week campaign. So they had to walk eggshells for the last four weeks or so quite successfully, one would argue, according to the opinion polls. I think that has shaped a lot of his attitude around uh, around uh, how Anthony Albanese has approached his campaign. Don't you agree? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, do you agree with my take that the Labour Party could be described as being cautious throughout this campaign? 100%. You just look at their policy platform they're bringing to this campaign. It's very safe ground for the Labour Party. Health, education, to a lesser extent, you know, childcare, Medicare, aged care, three cares. You could probably, and I think that's part of the repetition that enables people to remember. And I think what that means, and even on wages as well, which is Labour Party's term, I think as well, what that has meant is that the Labour Party is just trying to win government rather than, and, and rather than, and then from there, then enact change. Because I see this, for example, early in the campaign, Labour had been campaigning throughout most of its last term on increasing the new start rate, which is the unemployment benefits rate. But straight out of the block early in the campaign, it actually came out and said it would not implement that. And I think it knows the fact that it needs to win government and therefore win centrist voters and did not want to give Scott Morrison an opportunity to beat the Labour Party as irresponsible economic managers. So that is the Labour Party's thinking at the moment. And I think it's very clear where what its priorities are as it hits into the last week. Sam, we talked about the threat that teal independents are posing to the coalition. But Labour has had to deal with a threat as well. And this could be one of the more unspoken threats because the teal independents have taken a lot of the thunder, which is what is the threat from the parties like the Greens to some of the Labour? Because they are really challenging Labour in a couple of seats like Griffith, which is held, was held by former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. Potentially, it could take away uh, is uh, seats in Ryan from the Liberals and Brisbane, which is the Labour Party is also fighting for, but the Greens could have a shout. So overall, how much of a threat is the Greens to Labour? Yeah, I mean, if the opinion polls are correct, um, the Greens look set to be on for their best federal election primary vote result ever, um, beating their current record, which is the 11.8% they achieved in 2010. I mean, it remains to be seen whether that will actually materialise, but we could be talking about that next week. The advantage of the green vote in terms of Labour is that it almost uniformly falls into the Labour column when we go into second preferences in seats that the Greens don't win. The problem is that in a couple of seats, you mentioned a few of them, Griffith is a good example, uh, McNamara, which is one of the Greens' top targets in this election, is that the Greens want to challenge Labour for second place, i.e. the Greens want to be the ones who get second preference allocations in the next round. And they narrowed that primary vote lead in both Griffith and McNamara to just 7% back in 2019. And they're really hoping that this time around they might be able to challenge Labour in moving to that second preference round. So, yes, they are a threat because in a tight election, every seat counts. And if Labour can't guarantee that they're going to win some of these seats like Griffith and McNamara, where if they get to the second round against the coalition, they win quite handily. 
However, what we might be seeing is green MPs sitting in sitting in place of, of what used to be Labour MPs. And if that if it is a narrow election, if it falls down to hung parliament, yes, the Greens and Labour are more likely to work with each other than the Greens and the coalition. But Labour don't want to have to do that. They don't want to have to make that commitment because one, it plays badly for swing voters. And two, it makes governing a bit more difficult because you're relying on another party, not just your own caucus management, which could, again, fray because you're doing an agreement with another party. So it is a problem. I don't think it's as big of a problem as the Teal Independence, because what it hasn't done, like the Teal Independence have done to the coalition, is the Green Party threat hasn't really changed how Labour has chosen to approach this election, and it hasn't forced them to choose between two extremes of policy allocation because their voter pools tend to be quite friendly to each other. But it, what it could do is if Labour is making more climate-friendly pledges, again, Queensland, we keep coming back to it, but climate politics do not play well in Queensland. They didn't play well in Queensland in 2019, and outside of Brisbane, they look set not to play very well in 2022 either. So if one thing the Green Party is doing is moving Labour more towards climate-friendly politics, although the Labour Party in 2019 were quite fr climate-friendly already, but if they're going to win back some of these seats in Queensland that they need to win to form quite a significant majority, being very, very climate-friendly to pander to green voters is not going to play well. I think, though, the, one of the unspoken things that I think links both teal independence and challenge and potentially Labour's child uh, problems on the Greens is that the Catherine Dees issue is particularly key to this because Labour has kind of followed the coalition's lead, but obviously have not shouted it from the rooftops like Scott Morrison has in how you define a woman, for example. And I, I wonder whether that provides an opening in some of these very socially liberal inner city seats that the Greens are potentially challenging Labour and, and as well, potentially Labour from the last election scaled back its climate policy. So, for example, it actually went into the 2019 election with a climate target of 45% reduction in emissions. Well, they're going into this election with a 43% reduction in emissions. So, therefore, that gives the Greens oxygen to say that Labour has actually gone backwards on climate change. And considering now how in many cities climate change is a moral issue, that we need to do something to save the planet rather than an economic issue that impacts their own day-to-day -day living, I think that that could be a potential problem for Labour as well. And crucially, we see when Adam Bang was elected in Melbourne, that once Greens get elected, they get very hard to dislodge. And every one seat that goes not to the Labour Party in future makes it that much harder for Labour to retain government or to form government again, should it lose. So I think that's where the danger comes. That said, I would be immensely surprised if after this election, we have more Greens in Parliament that we than we have so-called teal independence. So I think... Mm. In 2022, in terms of the overall seat count threat, I definitely expect more teal independents to be successful than Green candidates to be successful in this election. And unlike the Greens to Labour, I don't think you can count on the second preferences flowing as easily from teal independents back to the coalition. Whereas for those for those green MPs who are not for those green candidates who are not successful, you do largely expect an overwhelming majority of their second preferences to flow straight to Labour, whereas the teal independents, I think, are less less clear-cut for me. Flip it around, Sam. What do you think on the other side of the political spectrum? Do you expect the minor right-wing parties, and there are a couple more, the Liberal Democrats, the United Australia Party, polling hands since One Nation is still around, will their preferences flow as discipline to the coalition as it proved so crucial in Queensland last, and other states, crucial marginals last time around? I don't think they'll prove to be as big of a problem as last time around because I think the, co well, I, I just get that impression from how the coalition have conducted their campaign because the, a lot more of the attention has been on dismantling the Teal Independence entire brand rather than focusing more on the One Nation um, candidates as well. And in terms of the visits. I don't think um, the coalition seem to think that the One Nation is as much of a threat as before. And a bit like the Greens, I think when it comes to preferencing, if One Nation candidates don't manage to get through to the quote-unquote second round of this counting, then most of their preferences will flow to the coalition because they're on the right of the spectrum. And especially 
in the kind of campaign that the Labour Party are putting out this time around with a lot of a climate focus. I highly doubt that any one nation vote is going to be flowing in the direction of the Labour Party, but stranger things have happened. So I, I just get the sense that for the right of Australian politics in this cycle, the Teal Independents are a much more important um, challenger to them than we're seeing in, in the more right-wing minor parties. And I mean, their, their polling ceiling at the moment seems to be around 3%, whereas the Greens is like 11%. So it's a very different ball game as well. Absolutely. I totally uh, agree with that. And I think that is the problem for, for the coalition in attempting to retain government. They do not have that the reliable third party floor of preferences that not necessarily other uh, uh, that, that the Labour Party has. Uh, time is fast running out, Sam, on what has been quite a fascinating discussion on uh, Australian politics. And I'm sure you and I will, it's one of the elections that you and I can watch actually in very different time zones in, in, in a, not the same time zone as us. But I wanted to ask you, Sam, before we get into our predictions, if we could narrow it to one Labour seat and one Liberal seat, currently held by these two parties that you will be watching for on election night, what will it be? So my Labour held seat, well, I actually have two and I'm going to say them both. But the main one I think, and I've brought it up before, is Hunter because it's been Labour held since 1910. Um, but in 2019, it had nearly a swing of nearly 10% towards the National Party. And any further swing towards the Nationals this time around will see it fall. And speaking of One Nation, in 2019, they had 22% of the primary vote to the One Nation party as well. So it suggests there is very much an upswell of right-wing support going on in, in seats like Hunter. And the reason I think it's going to be very fascinating to watch is because I think the, the result in this seat could be a huge indicator of where the Liberal national support might be going across Australia. And like we said, it compares to that red wall feeling in the UK with a shifting demographic focus for each of the parties. And if Hunter were to fall to the coalition, I'd be paying very close attention to other seats that are very similar, not least Eden Monaro, for example, which I think this time around is going to be a stretch for the coalition. But the by-election, which was held in 2020, was narrowly held by Labour, um, with second preference being... 50.4% to 49.6% um, and has been a classic bellwether seat nationally up until 2016, always falling with the party of government for the 40 years prior to that. And if the coalition were to have a great night, seats like Eden Minara would be falling to them and could be seats that are within their next grasp should they pick up Hunter this time around. So those are my Labour ones. I don't know if you want to say your Labour ones before I do my Liberal seat. Yeah, I think I think for me, I was not going for the cold seats, but I think one of the big interesting things is how much of that shift that we saw in the last election in those outer suburban seats will take place in this election. So the seat that I chose was, again, a seat I mentioned earlier, which is Parramatta. Western Sydney, the state MP is a Liberal. Crucially, Julie Owens, like in Hunter, is retiring at this election. The interesting thing for me is that Labour has pre-selected Andrew Charlton as its candidate here. Now, Andrew Charlton is an esteemed economist. He was Kevin Rudd's chief economist during the global financial crisis. But he was parachuted in at the last minute over local candidates. And this is a multicultural diversity where I'm looking for the impact of how Labour is in polling around multicultural communities as something that could be very interesting. Because like last week, I wonder whether the coalition is doing better around ethnic minority and, and areas and Labour is doing weaker. And I think Parramatta, given the circumstances, is a good seat to watch from my perspective and could be one that in the future, if given the fact we're on fourth term of the government, that could be why Labour fails to get over the line, but one that could prove a potential problem down the line. So I'm very much looking at Parramatta as my seat to watch in New South Wales. Yeah, and there seemed to be a huge problem with pre-selection in New South Wales because Parramatta was amongst four seats in New South Wales that the Liberal Party are hoping to regain. So Eden Monaro, Greenway and Warringah as well, where they didn't choose their candidate until the 2nd of April. 
So they've only really had six weeks, the campaign duration, basically, to make their, make their case and make their name much more recognisable across New South Wales. And that pre-selection is incredibly late for seats that they want to pick up because when if you are going to make a big run for seats like Eden Manara, which are definitely stretch seats in terms of liberal ambitions, if you are going to make headway there, you need to have quite a community establishment, a campaign that's been rumbling on and people being prepared to vote for that candidate. And that's definitely not what seems to have gone on in New South Wales with those late pre-selections. Um, but turning to my liberal health seat, I, I'm going to pick the seat of Bass. Just one quick point Sorry. on Parramatta yeah, as well. Just one quick, just one quick point on Parramatta. Uh, Labour did shoot himself himself in the foot, not only pre-selecting Andrew Charlton over the opposition local branches, but it did it very late. I think it did it like a week before the Liberals. If this problem with the Liberals pre-selection had been running for a year, so I think yeah. it could have had a, even put this out of the water altogether. But Labour tactically, I think, failed in that seat. But Onto your liberal seat, and I think it was going to be my original choice, which was Bass, wasn't it? It was, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, the reason I picked this is that it has only once since 1993 been successfully defended by an incumbent, and that was when Michelle O'Byrne, the Labour MP, held it between 98 and 2004. So it would be historically a big ask for this to be a liberal hold. And I think if Bass is a seat that falls into the Labour column quite quickly, that's suggestive that Al Anthony Albanese is going to have a good night because he's winning some of the top targets he has from the Liberal Party. I did very nearly suggest a different seat, but I think this is just going to be a great watch anyway, which is another seat we've talked about already, which is the Kuyong seat. Because if Josh Frydenberg were to lose his seat, that would be an enormous scalp for the Teal Independents and would also be an enormous loss for the coalition more generally. Because as you said, Josh Frydenberg was seen as the heir apparent to Scott Morrison. And if indeed he does lose his seat next Saturday, that would be a huge problem for the coalition. And even if they were to still, from that moment, become the largest party in a hung parliament, it would still be an enormous story. Uh, yes, Kuyong, I'm definitely looking forward to. But I did think you're going to add a Kuyong or Bass, and I tried to find something a bit different. So the seat that I'm going to choose is someone thing that could be very interesting, which is Robertson, which is held by Lucy Wicks on a 4% margin in the central coast of New South Wales. Lucy Wicks is a close ally of the Prime Minister, so can't really run away, which I noticed Josh Frydenberg has been trying to do over the Catherine Dees issue, by the way. Uh, that, um, and it's also, crucially, Robertson has voted with the government in every election since 1983. It is classic bellwether territory, classic mortgage belt area as well. And Labour has put forward an uh, interesting candidate, Gordon Reid, who is an emergency doctor and Aboriginal candidate as well. So this, I think, health, we know that this election will be dominated by health, given we're still emerging from the pandemic as well. And this is a crucial seat that I think will be particularly concerned about interest rates, given the fact we're going to see interest rates rise and how it balances all of that and the cost of increasing cost of living environment will be a key to how middle Australia thinks. And if Labour picks up Robertson, I think, to me, that is a very good sign because that's on a 4% margin beyond the seven seats that need the whole government. So I think... What we could see in this election is that Labour could gain a few seats above the seven that they need to form government, uh, but fail to take those that it should be under the 3% the or so swing to form a government. And conversely, they might even lose some seats that they hold. So it could be quite a messy election picture and one that could take some time to emerge, isn't it, Sam? Yes. So just before we finish, Chen, predictions? So like you, I can't see a coalition majority government. And I'm almost 99% sure that there will not be a coalition government, a minority government, because I think they will have to be cl as close to 75, probably, they will probably need 75, 74 potentially, and to be able to form a government itself. So then, they, so, and I just don't think that they're going to only lose two seats. I think they're going to lose a lot more, particularly, but I'm not, I am, part of me potentially could be PTSD from 2019 don't know whether Labour could win a majority government. I think I can definitely see them having a seven. I can probably get them to 76 relatively easily. But beyond that, I, I would say 78 is what I'm comfortable putting it as. 
uh, right now. If I were to be if push come to shove, I can see that. But I genuinely would not be surprised if Labour falls short, particularly since the coalition is much more vulnerable to the independence, which would drag down the coalition number, but not will not inflate that Labour number. Yeah. I'm going to go for, I think there will be a Labour majority, and I think 78 is around the ballpark I was going to go for as well. And the reason I say this is I think a lot of the narrative about being really tentative to make that prediction is based on 2019. And as we've tried to unpack throughout this episode, is that the indicators are very different to 2019 already. I don't want to be too confident because we've been burned with predictions before, but I think there has been a tendency to be very tentative about predicting a Labour majority, even though if this if this were prior to 2019, we would be looking at these indicators, the preferred prime minister indicators, net satisfaction, tendency of opinion polling, response to debates, response to issues that you would think this is, of course, going to lead to a Labour government. And I'm going to strip away the 2019 nervousness for a second and say that I think reasonably confidently that Labour are going to finish this in government. And I think it will be with a majority of their own seats. Well, we I did say 78 and 78 is majority is my most likely prediction. Yeah. So uh, we are both on the same page here. But I think nonetheless, if wh- whoever wins, the loser will be in for quite a big uh, soul-searching, I feel. Labour, if they fail to defeat an unpopular Scott Morrison in a fourth-term government, and the coalition will have to decide what on earth it wants to do about climate change, given it's now going to be facing a reckoning on this issue. So, Sam, I'm sure you and I will be continuing to cover Australian politics for many months and years to come, isn't it? It surely is an exciting country, isn't it? Absolutely. And on that note, that is it for the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Do join us again next week when we'll be looking back at results from two German state elections. And as always, we'll bring you up to date on the world of politics and elections from around the world. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at, at ballot underscore talk. Do us, and do leave us a rating, review, uh, and, follow, and follow us on our social medias and tell your friends about us. My name is Chen Han, and until next time, we'll speak to you soon.